This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Well, hey, we're here. We made it. We made it. Yeah. Take it in. <gasps> Look at this audience. It's beautiful. Yes. This is America. This is America. This is America. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes. ma'am. Well, how are you doing? God is good. Just, All the time. Just thank God, first and <laughs> foremost, for this opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. Uh, um, Alex, uh, Ms. Ng, uh, Dean Boston, all of you all here at CIS, uh, just for having me, for making this happen. I'm, um, I feel blessed. I just feel very blessed to be here. So thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you all for coming. Seriously. Just thank you all for coming. Yes. Seriously. Because you could be somewhere else and you're here. And I, we appreciate that. And shout out to Brooklyn, my homegirl, Shayeen from Brooklyn. She just moved out here, got a job with Facebook. I'm proud all of her. All right. You know what I'm yes. Excellent. Puerto Rico is in the building, homie. <laughs> Word. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, That's great. So what has been the reception so far? Well, uh, it's been incredible. We just got a great review today in Publishers Weekly um, about the new book. Um, and it's been wonderful. We're doing 12 cities. I think we're, well, I'm doing this week here, San Francisco, Oakland at the end of the week, San Rafael. Still got to get to Chicago, Atlanta, L.A. And yeah, we've just been moving around the country, having these small, intimate conversations. You know? yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So we all know the book. If you haven't picked it up, you should. Thank you. My mother, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and the last stand of the angry white man. I hope it's the last stand. <laughs> well, that was going to be one of my questions, judging from the I last two weeks. <laughs> where we saw a lot of angry white men on display yeah, with yeah. the Kavanaugh hearings. Yeah. Um, you and I spoke one day after Dr. Ford's testimony. And, and it Dr. Was, Ford's from this area, is that right? Yes. Yeah, yes. God bless her. I believe she her. teaches at Stanford. Yes. Um, and so where are we with that? I mean, hey, Zoe. What's up? How are you? <laughs> I see all my friends from like the it's East wonderful. Coast here. This is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's just a deep time in America. And I think y'all would agree with that. It's just a profound mm-hmm. time. And let me just say up front, you know, um, um, I love all people. Uh, I don't care what your background. Um, we cannot uh, tolerate racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, classism, uh, anything that that hurts people of any background. You know, that's where I am at this stage in my life and for the rest of my life as an activist and writer. Um, I've been very blessed to travel around this country. There's a lot of fear out here. There's a lot of division, a lot of violence, obviously. Uh, a lot of ignorance and hatred. I just was at a great program with my brother, my fraternity brother, my Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity brother, Lasana Hotep, who's a dean of Skyline College earlier today. And it was about fake news versus real news. And Rocky Rivera and myself, she's a great uh, Filipino journalist, writer here in, in the Bay Area, talked a lot about how we have to know history. We need to know who we are, whatever our identities are. We need to know those identities. And we got to be willing to have some uncomfortable conversations with ourselves and with each other. You know, Bell Hooks, one of my sheroes, always talks about the cur- having the courage to cross cultural boundaries. I mean, I'm clear. I'm an African person. I'm an African person. I'm an African person. I will always claim who I am, you know, first and foremost. But I also belong to the human family, the human race. And so for me, it's not an either or. It's both, you know. And I just think that, you know, we have an oligarchy in this country. Um, and it, it didn't just, it's just not new. They used to have names like Christopher Columbus and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, you know, cisgendered, heterosexual white males with power. I'm not talking about all white males. I'm not talking about all white people. But there's been a minority that has controlled the conversation in this country from the very beginning. And only in these times that we started to use terms like white supremacy and white privilege, you know, but this has always been the case. This is not some uh, new thing with Donald Trump. When I say the last standard angry white man, I'm just saying, hey, you know, look at this room. Look at the space in this room. Look at all the women who have raised their voices in the last year under the spirit, in the spirit of hashtag me too. There's something wrong with the society where people, you know, I've got to 
constantly fight for basic democracy? Can we move toward democracy? And I always ask people, look at the room now, what would this country look like if the civil rights movement hadn't happened, if the women's rights movement hadn't happened, if the gay rights movement hadn't happened? And we still have a long way to go because there's still a lot of hatred out there and people who are entrenched. And there's something wrong with this country where nine Supreme Court justices or the majority now being conservatives get to dictate what women can do with their bodies or not, you know, who can and who cannot vote. You know, we can go through a long list of stuff. And so it's not really about the Congress or the Senate, you know, it's so much about like, you know, we're trying to hold on to this power and we want to see the country continually through this lens, which is only our lens as, as, as white men with power, heterosexual white men with power. And that's dangerous, you know, for the rest of us. And then they win because we end up fighting each other. And so I say to you all out there, right from the very beginning, you know, we need love. We need love. We need love, you know what I mean? Because they want us to hate each other because of racial differences or your gender identity versus my gender identity, your class versus my class, East Bay versus San Francisco, Manhattan versus Brooklyn. You know know what I'm saying? And it's like, we can't participate in this. Right. You know, we got to participate in love. That's what we got to participate in. So you write a lot about toxic manhood. Yes, ma'am. And how does that fit into how is that juxtaposed against the notion of love, self-love? Well, I think that, um, and I'm speaking as a cisgendered male, um, uh, so-called straight male. I mean, I was given a script, like most of us were given, for the time I was born and had thoughts. And uh, we, we had a wonderful program. I want to acknowledge Dr. Judy Chu from Stanford University, who's a brilliant scholar. No, don't be shy, Judy. <laughs> she's, she's also mad humble, which I have a lot of respect for. But we were on KML last night. Uh, and it was an incredible conversation with her and Byron Hurt uh, and myself just talking about how uh, for the time I was thinking, this is what boys do, quote unquote, and this is what girls do. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, you know, I talk about in this book, I have a couple of essays in there about, uh, about uh, Harvey Weinstein and this whole phenomenon that has exploded in the last year, manhood and me too. Um, as a boy, you know, I was told uh, by other boys and grown men, you know, this is what boys do, you know, go out and get sexual conquest. We're six, seven years old having these con- conversations with each other, you know, being told, being encouraged, you know, to go grab girls' body parts in school like it was no big deal. No one, you know, literally policing each other. And, you know, the, 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 the terms we use to describe each other, you know, the, 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 the distance we use toward each other, you know, the homophobic slurs we would say to each other, anything to get us to fit into this box that this is what a boy does. And I was an athlete growing up. I love all sports. You know, that was just my love. You know, I, I didn't realize, not even through my college years, you know, that there was something very destructive about this. You know, I remember... And I think I talk about, I do talk about it in this book, when I was a kid, there was a girl in the neighborhood who's, I never knew her name, but the boys instantly labeled her as quote unquote, Hori Dory, because she allegedly, we don't even know for sure, actually allegedly had sex with boys in the neighborhood, but the boys could do it, no label. The girls do it, then they're labeled. Do you know what I'm saying? And so these were the things that were happening, you know, and what I realized now is that many of us were being encouraged to, to not only be sexist, but to participate in rape culture you know, to participate in all kinds of destructive behavior toward, toward, uh, toward women and girls. And we oftentimes only saw women and girls as two things, either sexual objects or mother figures slash caretakers. And then if you think about the school system, how we're educated, I was an A student, K through 12, public schools, private schools, it really doesn't matter unless you go to a pro- progressive school where you actually learn about the contributions as equals of women and girls to society. In my 13 years of school until college, I think I learned about three or four women, Betsy Ross, Rosa Parks, Helen Keller, and that was basically it. And, you know, it's almost like you all had contributed nothing to math, science, history, anything. And then we wonder why Donald Trump and other folks say things like grab them by there. You know, you wonder why Bill Cosby from 1960s to the present, the last decade, you know, drugged a number of women. You wonder why all this behavior is going on. This is also about power and privilege for us as men. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's what it is. And so we, our power and privilege comes at the expense of each other and the expense of those who identify as women and girls. And for me, you know, I, I, had to, I was challenged by women in the early 1990s when I was a young man engaging in destructive behavior and said, you know, how can you, Kevin Powell, claim to be this, this, this activist, this black activist talking about racism, but then you're participating in the oppression of half your community or half the country's population, which is women and girls. And so we as men, 
you know, all of us in this room who identify as men have to rethink manhood. You know what I mean? We have, it's not about ego. It's not about competition. It's not about power. It's not about privilege. It's about respecting women and girls as equals, which they are, and also understanding that most of the definitions that we've got around manhood has had to do with violence. It's about violence. It's about violence in some form or fashion. You know, and we have to make a conscious decision to say, well, I want to be different. You know, one of the most poignant moments, Dr. Chu knows what I'm talking about last night is when a young man called in, he was driving his car and pulled over and said, I'm grappling with this. I'm in a violent situation right now. I've been violent toward my partner. I need help. That's the most critical thing a man can do is just be vulnerable. I need help. But we are often, you know, we talked about last night, Dr. Chu in this male prison, this male box where we're not even allowed to cry to express anything. You know, so we end up becoming these monster figures like Weinstein, like Trump, like Cosby, et cetera, you know, and we've got to twist, turn this thing around because as, as Evensler, Bell Hooks, Gloria Stein, and many women have said that sexism will not end until we men make it in. It's really simple. It's really simple. And even if you're not the kind of man who would ever engage in any of the destructive behavior, but you have people around you who engage in it and you say nothing about it, you become just as guilty. It's that simple. It's that simple. Yeah. So Kevin, one of the things that I really have loved and admired about you over the years is that you really embody this notion of transformation. Um, it's and, hard. And consciousness. And I know it's hard, but you have had your own journey. And um, one of the things that happened to me while reading your book is that I could not read it all the way through. I had to actually have some space. Wow. Um, and I had some sleepless nights, oh, especially I'm sorry. around. That's okay. Yes, ma'am. Um, because I'm going through my own transformation. I understand. Right? And that's part of it. Yeah. One of the things that I wrote down from Ma. My mother. Yes. Um, and you She's write special. about her. She is special. You write about her extensively. Yeah. Um, the moment when your ma said, men ain't no good. Yeah. Um, and I want you to share with our audience um, what, how that landed on you. And I also want you to share when in your life did the transformation begin because you were part of this cycle yeah. of violence, yeah. right? But there was an instance in your life where that shifted for you. Yeah. And I want you to talk a little bit about that. Great questions. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, the context is, um, if I may, my um, mother was born in the South, in South Carolina in 1943. She actually turned 75 this year. Uh, she was born on August 28, 1943, which means she actually turned 20 years old on the same day as the March on Washington, where Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech. But she grew up in a world where her birth certificate said colored, uh, where she was forced to, her and her three sisters were forced to start working when they were little girls. Uh, she started picking cotton when she was eight years old. Uh, interesting enough, when you think about patriarchy, sexism, misogyny, the one boy child, my uncle, the youngest, he was the only one that was allowed to go get a high school diploma, you know? So we need to think about how this operates. Uh, I can look back now and say, well, my mother had to deal with triple evils of racism, sexism, classism from the time she was a little girl. She's a dark-skinned black woman, a dark-skinned black girl, beautiful, because we're all beautiful no matter what we look like. But she grew up in a world where she was told over and over again that she was ugly, that she was unattractive. You know, there was no aspirations for her. It's just like, you, you're gonna be working for people. You're gonna be what we call the help. Uh, she did what many black folks uh, did. And this is one reason why we have to, um, when we talk about um, uh, our, this country, our country, we need to understand not only is there an external immigration of brothers and sisters from you know Europe, from Asia, from Latin America, but there's also been this internal immigration called the black migration. The black migration, like how did black folks end up in California or Chicago, you know, or Detroit or New York, New Jersey, where I was born. She moved up North with two of her sisters and they were so poor like they were poor in the South where, you know, they sometimes would have syrup poured into a bowl. That was their meal for the whole family. You know, five children and uh, two parents, seven people in a two-room shack. This is how they grew up. The three girls that moved up North, three of the sisters moved up North, including my mother, actually shared a bed and a room when they first got up North. And they, they took the jobs they could take, um, factory jobs, uh, working in the homes of wealthy people. My mother shared with me when I was a little boy, I don't know why she told me the story, but she was working in the home of a wealthy white family in Westchester County. Y'all who have been in New York know that's right above north of New York City. And she said there was a day where the, um, the father was there, the husband was there by himself with her, and he um, 
came out in a robe, a la Harvey Weinstein, in a robe, and there was nothing under the robe. You know, this is in the 1960s, before I was born. And I don't, my mother never finished the story, you know, um, and I don't know what happened, how she got out of that situation, but that was one of the reasons why she started saying to me, men are no good. And the second, more important reason, unfortunately, was my father, who was 11, 12 years older than her. My mother fell in love with him. She fell in, he, she, she fell in love with him. He fell in lust with her, got her pregnant, and didn't even have the decency, one, to marry her. And number two, when I was about to be born, my mom had to call a cab, and she took herself to the hospital, and that's how she gave birth to me in Jersey City, New Jersey. And so here I am now being raised by a mother with an eighth grade education because her education was interrupted because of the poverty, the racism, the sexism that she had to deal with uh, on welfare, food stamps, government cheese, and the kind of poverty I wouldn't wish on anybody, which is in spite of uh, the 13 books I have and whatever resume I have, I still see the world through the lens of working class people, poor people, which is why it bothers me when I hear people call people ghetto or hood or trailer trash or poor white trash or rednecks or illegal aliens, because I cannot deal with any form of dissing of poor people because that's where I come from. You know what I'm saying? My father, I only saw him two or three times from the time I was a kid born until I was eight years old. He would say to my mother, we're gonna get married. And then nothing. You know, he showed up one time because my mother called, bought me a watch. Another time, bought me a bicycle. You know, and what men always ask me now, well, what do I need to do? I'm like, showing up is important for your kids. Just show up. Try to show up. He didn't make an effort to show up. You know what I'm saying? And then one rating day when I was eight years old, uh, we had no phone. You know, I didn't know what color TV was when I was growing up. I mean, we were poor. I had one pair of shoes, one pair of sneakers. If we ran holes into the shoes of sneakers, we had to put cardboard or newspaper at the bottom. This is how I grew up. You know, um, my mother and I went to the drugstore because that's where the phone booth. Remember phone booths, y'all? Yeah. And you had to put yes. a, coins in those joints. Remember back in the day before these <laughs> iPhones and Androids and stuff? It was a rainy day. And my mother got into it. She closed the door. She called my father. And she said what she always said. Can you help us? Can you help us? And on this particular day, my father said to my mother, because I could see her body language, and she would share the words with me afterwards, you know, you lied to me. He's not my son. I'm not going to give you a near nickel. She he actually said a near nickel for him ever again and hung up the phone with my mother. Never saw my father again. Never heard from him again. That hurt my mother, wounded my mother tremendously. And from there, I'm eight years old. I heard for the next 10 years until I went to college, men ain't no good. You just like your father or don't be like your father. Now we gotta keep, put this in context. My mama didn't have no Oprah. There was no therapy. There was no healing circles. There was no women's circles. There were no reading groups. She was a working class woman, black woman trying to just survive. And so she didn't know that these words would have an effect on her son. You just like your father, don't be like your father or men ain't no good, because I'm the only male in the house. So I'm like, I guess consciously, subconsciously, I guess she's talking about me as well. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very complex, combative relationship. And it was violent. It was abusive. You know, I talk about it. I Years of therapy, 25 plus years of therapy. I came to a place where I had to forgive my mother because I said, you know what, what I don't want to do is, you know, relate to people the way from a position of hurt for the rest of my life. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense, y'all? You know what I mean? Because otherwise you're just walking around traumatized your entire life and you're going to end up in traumatized relationship after traumatized relationship. But it did stick with me. Even through my worst years as a, as a young male, men ain't no good. Don't be like your father. But the question, the problem was I had no alternative. Like, what am I looking for? Because I don't know what a man's supposed to be. You know, when I graduated from high school, grade school to high school, eighth grade to high school, I didn't even know how to tie a necktie. My mother had to go up the street and ask a, a man up the street, can you show my son how to tie a tie? This is my reality. And this is unfortunately, unfortunate, this is the reality for a lot of us. And so we're looking for definitions of manhood and then you get it from hip hop, you get it from rock and roll, you get it from you know, the folks in the, in the barbershop, you get it from all these different places, but oftentimes they're not healthy definitions of manhood. You feel me? And so you're confused. And I was confused. You know what I'm saying? I was very confused. 
violence toward males, toward females, anger, you know, what we call a bad temper, um, not knowing how to hug, not knowing how to say I love you to people. I mean, I'm like a big hugger now, you know what I'm saying? I like to love people. Like, I love you, Zoe. I love you, Lasana. Love you, Reverend Earl. You know what I'm saying? I love y'all. You know what I mean? But at 18 years old, when I got to college, one of the first people I met was uh, Lisa Williamson, who some of y'all may know as Sister Soldier, Rutgers University. And I remember it was the middle of the anti-apartheid movement. Nelson Mandela was still in jail. I was so ignorant. I didn't know what apartheid was. I didn't know what South Africa was. I said, I know where the South Bronx is. That's where hip hop started. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I know where South Carolina is. That's where my mom and them from. Right. You know, but I, um, Soldier tried to hug me and I recoiled because I realized I had never been touched before. Men need to know how to be touched, you know what I mean? In a healthy way. I didn't know. I had no idea. What I knew was fighting. Let's meet after lunch. Let's meet after school, you know, um, playing tackle football on concrete, knocking each other into cars. You know, if you get knocked down, I would, you know, I've, you know, I've have, I have several crooked fingers from growing up because you were told as boys that you got to get up. No, who cares if your fingers are broken? Who cares if your shoulders dislocated? Who cares if your nose is bloody? This is what we were told will make you a man. Well, you pay a price for it later, you know what I'm saying? Because you end up thinking that this is the way, this is normalized, you know what I'm saying? And so it was, um, it was difficult. Yeah. It was very difficult. Sure. sure. So what happened? When did the transformation transition begin where you needed, you knew that you needed to put in the work? Malcolm X. Malcolm X, 18 years old. Um, somewhere in my first semester of college where, you know, this is the 1980s. So you're talking about, you know, the Reagan era, which is just like the Trump era. And we got to stop pretending it was not. Mm -hmm. Like we're pretending like George W. Bush because he gives Michelle Obama a hug. A cough drop. Yes, somehow he's evolved into this person <laughs> who did not fly over people on rooftops right. during mm -hmm. Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. A monster is a monster is a monster. Let's be real about this. The Reagan era was monstrous for black people. It was the era of crack cocaine, et cetera. Jesse Jackson was running for president, talking about hope before Barack Obama did, you know, you know, some 20 years later or so. Um, um, the rise of Louis Farrakhan, all kinds of stuff that I never thought about. You know, it doesn't mean I agree with this gentleman now, but it's like, you know, I had never heard black people speak in that way. I grew up in, unfortunately, very corrupt, uh, devilish black churches. Let's just call it what it is. Churches that were not about empowering people. They were about taking our money, you know, and hustling us and keeping poor people poor. You know what I'm saying? And so for the first time, I started thinking about blackness and I was told, I was actually shown an album cover first it said Mes Malcolm X, and I thought it was Malcolm the 10th, because I was like, Roman numerals, 10. I got it, Malcolm the 10. And it said, message to the grassroots. That was a speech. Mm -hmm. And I listened to that speech, and it blew my mind. And then I was told, you need to read the autobiography of Malcolm X. 18 years old, no father. K through 12, my whole school years, I had never had a single black male teacher, black male role model. You know, you see all these movies about how the coach is the best friend of the kids. I played baseball, I ran track, I was a great runner. I, they were, no, we ran, we hit the ball, we jumped and we went home. That's how it worked, you know? And so I'm reading Malcolm's autobiography and I, I was, first I was ashamed that I had never heard of him. But I didn't know anything about black history, period. I knew Rosa Parks didn't give up her seat and Dr. King had a dream. And that was the totality of my education around black folks, K through 12. And I was an A student K through 12. I'm gonna keep saying that. And so I'm reading this book and I'm blown away. Cause you know, when you grew up poor, the way I did, you think that you like the only one, it's just your community. Cause I also had never been on a plane. I didn't get on a plane until I was 24 years old. So I had no idea that there was folks in East Oakland and parts of San Francisco or South Central LA or Long Beach that went through similar experiences. All I knew was what we were going through in Jersey City. And so I'm reading this book and I'm just going through his life and how his father was killed by white supremacists and how his mother, you know, was crushed under the weight of raising eight children by herself. And she ended up in a mental institution and how they ended up in what we call foster care today. And I'm literally crying reading this book, but I'm also seeing myself for the first time. Does that make sense? 
And I was a reader because of my mama taking me to the library when I was a kid, eight years old. So I loved reading. But in high school, and I loved Shakespeare, you know, and I thought I was Hamlet in high school for real. Like, to be or not to be, I was like, word. <laughs> that is the question, you know what I'm saying? Son, to be or not to be? As y'all right. say in the Bay Area, that's a hella question, you know what I'm saying? That's a hella question. Word. But mm-hmm. Malcolm, by the time I got to the end of the book, and I realized he was killed, I was, I, I cried like a baby, number one. But then I also said, um, I want to be like Malcolm. I want to be like Malcolm X. I want to be like him. How he sank to the bottom of society, was in jail for seven years, but he reinvented himself over and over again. And it came because of reading, because of education. And he only had an eighth grade education, just like my mother, and it blew my mind. And, you know, ever since then, I was like, I'm going to do like Malcolm. I'm going to always um, read something. I'm always going to carry stuff to read. And I always have to be critically self-reflective. And I have to be willing to change. And I have to be as honest as Malcolm was, even when it's uncomfortable for me or for other people. And that would predict later on when I started thinking about sexism and being a sexist male and how I needed to evolve from that. All of that came from the framework that Malcolm X gave me. That's the honest to God truth. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. You know, in your book, you write a lot about some sports figures. I love I, sports. I love sports too. Um, but I'm on an NFL strike, I'll be honest. Me with too. You. Um, Colin Kaepernick. Much I'm done. Love, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I was wondering when I was reading your your narrative about Cam Newton, where you were going with this. I did too. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, Cam is um a quarterback for the Carolina Panthers, handsome Tall, dark, and handsome, um, who took his team to the Super Bowl, had an amazing year, had an unfortunate press conference yeah. uh, after his loss. Here in, um, in the Bay Area. Here in the Bay Area. Bay, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And has not been able to shake that until now. Yeah. Ever. Um, and so I'm left with... Um, you know, your what are your feelings just around the current state of black athletes, responsibility? Um, I, I heard someone talk about Jim Brown last week, who was with Kanye West in the <laughs> in the White House, saying, "What would the younger Jim Brown say to the older Jim Brown? It would not be pretty, right?" Um, and so, where are we with that? Because that really does kind of go to the crux of a piece of where we are culturally and historically in America? Wow, that's a great great question. Um, so the first books I read when my mama took me to the library when I was eight, and I always say this to young people now, because a lot of folks, not just young people, old people as well, uh, people say they don't love to read. I'm just like, well, you know, we need to, as we said earlier at Skyline, hashtag read, study, travel, hashtag read, study, travel for the rest of our lives, because it just takes you places. and. You know, for me, the books I read first were sports books, football, baseball, basketball. I didn't care what it was because that's what I loved as a kid. That's what helped me to escape the reality of where we were living in poverty because I could watch football. I could watch baseball. I could watch basketball. I could imagine being one of those folks, you know what I'm saying? And so sports is very important to me. Um, It's saved my life as much as hip-hop has saved my life. And I know we're going to talk about hip-hop in a moment too, you know, but I also grew up with Muhammad Ali, you know what I'm saying? Who I also write about in this new book when he passed and what Muhammad Ali represented, you know? And I didn't really understand Ali as a kid because I was a little kid when he was Ali. It wasn't until years later that I was like, oh, he changed his name and he demanded that people call him not Cassius Clay any longer, but Muhammad Ali, which is important. He talked about having a slave name and wanting to have his own name. You know, his opposition to the Vietnam War, the Viet Cong, Vietnamese people never called me the N-word. I was like, this dude was dope, you know what I'm saying? And I just, um, so that was him, you know, as a baseball fan my whole entire life. Kurt Flood, Kurt Flood, Kurt Flood, Kurt Flood, a black athlete most folks have never heard of who was a baseball player for the St. Louis Cardinals in 1969, 1970, who said, you can't, I don't want to go to the team that you want to trade me to. He basically created what we now call free agency. 
there would not be KD coming to the Warriors or LeBron going to the Lakers if it wasn't for Kurt Flood. Jim Brown, I kept hearing Jim Brown is one of the greatest football players ever, if not the greatest football player ever, but that he also took stands during the Civil Rights Movement. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell, all these names, you know. You know, the famous Olympics in 1968 with the two athletes, you know, Tommy Smith and John Carlos with their fists up in the air. So that was what I thought of as black athletes. Unfortunately, you know, what has happened in the last 20 years or so, in my opinion, or since the civil rights era, is that there's been a serious co-optation of black radicalism, black militancy, you know, in every arena, including sports, where people are were afraid to speak out in fear of losing contracts, endorsements, et cetera. You know, um, people think that Colin Kaepernick was first, but what was the, ba- the basketball player back in the 1990s? Mahmoud Abdul Raoul. Mahmoud Abdul Raoul, who pro- who would, as a Muslim, would pray in his own way during the national anthem, and he basically got, I don't say blacklisted, whitelisted with the National Basketball Association. You know what I'm saying? Because of his stand, you know? And so a lot of people said, well, nope, I don't want to participate in that. So one reason why I wrote about Cam Newton in this book is because I, there's a whole history of black folks in football and the International Football League is about 80% black males. As players. No black owners, not majority owners, you know, barely any black coaches, barely any black general managers, mm-hmm. yet someone else gets to legislate these black bodies. Mm-hmm. Sounds a lot like slavery to me. You know what I'm saying? You know, y'all need to read a book by William Roden, who was for a long time the only black sports writer at the New York Times called $40 million Slave. Mm-hmm. You know, and for me, Cam Newton, at the time that I started writing that piece, I worked on that piece for about a year. And you're right, I didn't know where, I didn't know where it was going either because it started off as a piece for ESPN. Mm-hmm. Me and a white brother who was my editor at the time, we had a big difference of opinion about the direction of the piece because I said, you know what? I can't just write about Cam Newton. I want to write about the history of black quarterbacks as well. And I want to write about the history of black folks playing football, period. Because people don't realize there was times where black folks were in the National Football League in the 1920s and then actually were banned from the National Football League for about 25 years until after Jackie Robinson got into baseball in the late 1940s. I was like, this is important history. And one reason why black folks, black men were banned from football in the late 1920s into the 1930s because black men not only wanted to be players, but they wanted to be coaches. They wanted to be owners. They wanted to assert their right to be who they are, like KD and LeBron in 2018. We are not slaves. We are not slaves. We are making your National Football League or your National Basketball Association a multi-billion dollar industry, and we should have a say-so in this. The other reason why I wanted to write about Cam is because out of all the sports, the National Football League has the worst contracts. And their football players are the most vulnerable to having permanent damage, as we've learned in the last couple of years, including concussion effects. You know, if y'all don't think so, watch these players as they go into the National to the Hall of Fame and how the older ones can barely walk without any discomfort. You know what I'm saying? And so, you know, Cam became this interesting person because people call him all kinds of names. People have called him Uncle Tom. You know, people have said he's a sellout. And I said it's more complex than that, you know, because he's a black man who's raised by a strong black woman, a strong black man, his mother and father, you know, who grew up in a very black-centric community, which is Atlanta, Georgia, you know, and he grew up in the black church, you know. But are we really allowed to be our whole authentic selves without being called arrogant, without being called angry? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Because black people, in this case, black men represent a certain kind of threat to white America, not all white people, but the folks who are threatened by unapologetic blackness. You know what I'm saying? And so that's why I decided to write that piece about him. And it was difficult because I was barely given any time to, to, to talk to Cam. I think I counted in my, t- my digital tape 12 minutes total between Baltimore, Carolina, North Carolina, and Los Angeles. I was with him in three different places and I got 12 total minutes because the people around him because the big difference between Muhammad Ali and a lot of the players, to athletes today, is that you got all these people around you trying to control everything. That's not freedom. Handlers. Handlers. And so I talk about that in the piece. And it's like, you know, I said at the end of the piece, I don't know what's going to happen to Cam Newton, you know. But I'm thankful for my, net, my basketball brothers like LeBron and KD and folks like that. And I hear a lot of people dissing LeBron and KD. Who do they think they are moving from team to team? Well, I think they think they're business people who own themselves. That's what I think they are. <laughs> and and it, like, if you don't like a job, you move to another That's job. Right. That's right. You don't like a city, you move to another city. You have a right to do that. Mm-hmm. Y- y'all with me? Yeah. 
You know what I mean? And so I actually think that LeBron, when you look at what he's doing, you know, not just I'm going to determine where I'm going to play, but also I'm going to own my own multimedia company. I'm going to make sure I pour resources back into Akron, Ohio, so I can send thousands of kids to college, but I'm also going to make sure that it's not just for the kids, but it's also for their parents, because this is a holistic approach. This is LeBron who was born to a 16-year-old single mother. You know what I mean? And so the piece about Cam Newton and really about the whole book is about, like, what does freedom look like? What does democracy really look like? What does opportunity really look like for all of us? If we really are equals, then shouldn't we all have an opportunity to have an opportunity? Mm-hmm. Can we find freedom in music? <laughs> we used to be able to if his name was Sam Cooke or, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn or Nina Simone. Um, I'm a lifelong hip hop head. I'm a diehard hip hop head. I mean, you said it, uh, or Alex said it. My, 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 my next book, my 14th book after this is a biography of Tupac Shakur, who I knew very, very well when he was alive. Uh, I interviewed him many times for Vibe Magazine when I was working there. Um, I was in Las Vegas on the day that they announced his death, and I've not been to Vegas since then. You know, it was one of the most traumatic days of my life, you know what I'm saying, for a lot of us who knew Pac. You know, I was there when he got shot the first time in New York. I mean, um, music, music, you know, for me, music is Bob Dylan, Blowing in the Wind. It's, you know, Joan Baez. It's, 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 it's Billie Holiday. You know, it's U2. It's, it's, it's Public Enemy. You know, it's the best of Tupac. Um, music in my opinion, and if I can speak as a black person for a second, and black folks know what I'm talking about because I grew up in the church, music is supposed to be liberating, empowering. I'm not saying everything got to be about, you know, uh, political messages, but it, it, what we got from music in my household, me and my mother, with her radio in the kitchen, and when we went to church on Sundays, you know, was that it was the one thing that nurtured us. It fed us, you know what I'm saying? Which is why I still to this day love like those old, old spirituals by people like Clara Ward and Mahalia Jackson and the Soul Stirrers because it just, it does something to your soul because black people are saying, hey, we've been here for 400 years. And you know what, our music, our music is one of the things that has sustained us and kept our connection to the higher power, whatever we call that higher power, mm-hmm. you know, and in the face of all that we've had to deal with, music sets us free, right? But unfortunately, what has happened, um, this culture that we created, because black folks, you take black people out of America, you basically have little to no music. You have some music, but you don't have blues, you don't have jazz, you don't have spirituals, you don't have rock and roll, you don't have soul music, you don't have hip hop. You know, there's a lot of things that are being missing. Think about if you took black people's music out of America. Read a book called Blues People by Mary Baraka, Leroy Jones, Blues People, you know. Um, And so our music has always come from the bottom. People think that jazz is this classic. It is American classical music. It's the only classical music we ever created. But jazz music was created by poor folks, by working class folks. You know, cashed off instruments after the Civil War. People picked them up in a place called Louisiana. You know what I'm saying? You know, uh, jazz was a term that meant sex, just like rock and roll was a term that meant sex. You know what I'm saying? And so hip hop was created by the same poor people that Dr. King told us not to forget at the end of his life, his poor people's campaign, his Vietnam War speech, where he said America was sending poor blacks and poor whites to fight poor yellow people in a place called Vietnam, which is why Dr. King kept talking at the end of his life about economic justice, economic justice. Poverty is unacceptable. Poverty, y'all, is a form of violence. Yeah, it is. And so poor people created hip hop, poor African-Americans, poor West Indians and poor Latino sisters and brothers, Latino, Latina sisters and brothers in New York City. And y'all who are in California know that there was a parallel energy happening with African-Americans and Latinos on the West Coast. You know what I'm saying? And what do I mean by poor people created it? Two turntables and a microphone, some spray paint or magic markers, you know what I'm saying? Making something out of nothing, winning on your own terms. You know, I just did a, 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 I just worked with Crazy Legs, an amazing Puerto Rican brother from New York, from the Bronx, who's one of our pioneering dancers in hip hop history. He just got an award from Hispanic Heritage Foundation. And he talked about how growing up poor in the Bronx in the 1970s, hip hop was all we had. And it saved his life. Crazy Lake has now been to over 100 countries because of hip hop. 
And so in a lot of ways, hip hop was like our own civil rights movement, you know what I'm saying? But the culture, the DJ, the MC, the graffiti writing, the dancing, and knowledge, 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 was created to be about life. I submit to you all that beginning in the late 80s, early 1990s, when hip hop was exploding in America and around the world, and you saw white sisters and brothers and Asian sisters and brothers and everyone participating in this thing, you know, there was those same folks who were like, you know, we've got we to gotta control this narrative. We're gonna take the life out of this culture. We're gonna turn it into the industry called hip hop. This hip hop culture, and here's the hip hop industry. And what used to be about life becomes about death. Now I come from the ghetto, Lasana, and I connected as educated black men, professionals, we're fraternity brothers, but we've swapped war stories about growing up in an inner city environment. It ain't a game. We're lucky to be alive. But I know for a fact, every day was not murder and mayhem. You know what I'm saying? You would think when you started seeing the music that was getting put forth more than anything else, beginning in the early 90s, that all we did was call each other N-I-G-G-A's and B-I-T-C-H's. All we do is do drugs and drink and party and BS and all that kind of stuff. It's anti-intellectual, all kinds of, you know. And so what was happening in the early 90s, the balance was taken out of the culture it was shifted to the industry. And so just like the whole country over the last 25 years or so, years or so year, 25 years or so has been dumbed down, so has hip hop been dumbed down. It's been dumbed down. It's been dumbed down. It's been dumbed down, you know? But we know the whole country's been dumbed down because of things <laughs> like this. You know what I mean? It's not just hip hop, it's everything. And so for me, I don't disrespect and my brother Swift One is out there, a talented young rapper from the Bay Area. Y'all need to support him. You know what I'm saying? Support Swift. You know, he and I have had these conversations. Whatever I said, learn the history of the music. Learn the history of the music. You know what I mean? And, you know, music, art, culture, brother Ronnie Ewing is a great visual artist here from San Francisco. You know, art is not just about reflecting what's going on. It should also be about correcting what's going on. What ends up happening, we're just reflecting stuff, but we're not correcting anything. You know, when I listen to Marvin Gaye's album, What's Going On, which came out a month before Tupac was born, May 1971, Pac was born June 71, Marvin Gaye was not a political activist. You know what I'm saying? He was a crooner. He was a sex symbol. But his brother had been in Vietnam. And he saw all the stuff going on in the country, and he said, I need to say something. What's going on? What's going on? And so all I'm saying is that, you know, you can always tell where people are. This is Amir Barak and blues people. He was talking about black folks, but I actually would say it's about the whole country. You can always tell where people are by the music they make at any given time. That's the problem. That's the problem right now. What is going on with our art? You know what I'm saying? What is going on with our art? You know, what, I'm, what we need, and I'm going to end this music part here, there was a Jewish brother, white brother named Robert Zimmerman, who became known as Bob Dylan. Why did he become known as Bob Dylan? He was inspired by Dylan Thomas, who was from Wales. You know what I'm saying? You know, and Bob Dylan took this name, you know, and he's a young man in the early 60s. He sees this movement happening with black folks in this country. He writes a song called Blowing in the Wind. It's a classic. A black man named Sam Cooke hears this song. He's like, yo, son, how did this white brother write this song called Blowing in the Wind? This white brother must have great compassion and empathy, and he must have respect for music and art and culture. You know what I'm saying? Mark, Sam Cooke, because of the racism in the country, was hesitant at first to make his own song. So you can go to YouTube and see clips of Sam Cooke actually performing Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan. But at some point, this white brother and his black brother both wrote songs that became anthems. Sam Cooke said, I'm, I'm just going to go write the change is going to come. You know what I mean? So we need artists. We need artists. I think artists should do whatever you want to do. But how do you live in these times of Trumpism and you don't have anything that's saying anything about what's going on? There's something wrong with us if we don't have anything that is challenging and questioning in a very profound way. You know, Miss Nina Simone making a song like Mississippi Goddamn. I mean, that was incredible. You know what I'm saying? That's what we need. And so I listen to a lot of old music. I do listen to the radio. I definitely listen to the radio. Um, but I also have been to all 50 states in this country, as I always say. I've been to all the major cities. And 
it bothers me when I can go to any station, any city, and they play the same 12, 13 songs over and over again on the hip hop and R&B stations. The lack of diversity, the lack of showing, highlighting local artists on the radio and local stations most of the time. You know what I'm saying? You know, y'all may be a little bit better here in the Bay Area, but a lot of places, they don't even play the local artists. You know what I'm saying? And so I just think, and I also think that if you really are into music, you know, you should really be into music. You should know music, you know? You should know the history of it. And, 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 and we got to teach each other and challenge each other. You know, um, Tupac, if I can bring in it here for, you know, when he made that song, Keep Your Head Up, one reason why he made that song and he used the samples that he did, he said, because my mother used to sing to me when I was a baby, the five stair steps song, Ooh Child. That's the foundation of Keep Your Head Up, Ooh Child. That's the hook. So there's a connection there. When, when, when Tupac says things like Marvin Gaye used to sing to me, I mean, he's paying homage to what came before. A lot of us are not paying homage to what came before, which is why a lot of what we're seeing now is not really good. And then the music and the, the, the corporate structure is not about putting out great artists. I mean, do you think a Prince could exist in these times or Bob Dylan or Joni Mitchell? Would they even get record deals in these times? The answer is probably no, because they don't have enough YouTube hits. We can't leave the music thing first. Okay. Um, because I think what happened last week with Kanye West and the Oval Office says a lot about where we are as a culture and who gets to speak, who has a platform yes, and who doesn't. Yeah. Um, and so lots of things have come about. I've heard, you know, he's off his meds. It's a mental illness. No, he's just an idiot. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. And so we can't ignore it. Yes, right? ma'am. Because he's, he has a presence and has had major news media after him the last few days since the Oval Office meeting yeah. with Jim Brown. And so I just want to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, it's tragic. It's really tragic. And I can't, I can't, and I, no judgment to anyone else who does it, but I, I can't go on social media and diss Kanye because, I mean, we've seen this play out with Amy Winehouse, with Whitney mm -hmm. Houston, with Kurt Cobain, you know, even Tupac to some extent, you know, people who are famous you know, going through all kinds of trauma and stuff like that they had before they became famous. And we can't assume just because someone's famous, all of a sudden they're, it goes away or they're automatically woke, as we say, you know what right. I mean? Um, when I think about Kanye, I just think about someone who is severely mentally ill, you know, for a lot of reasons. I mean, one, you know, he's a black man in America who has had to deal with racism his entire life. We don't know the effects of that. We don't know what he went through in his childhood. We don't know what he went through with his mother and father not being together his entire adolescence. You know, uh, we don't know what has happened since he's become famous. We see bits and pieces of stuff. But the stuff that's coming out of his mouth just this year alone, slavery was a choice. I'm like, nah, man, slavery was not a choice. You know, but Lasana, you've said it, you know, Kanye doesn't read. Yeah. He don't study. You know, this is just spitting things out. And what we need to also be critical of is that there's an obsession with celebrity. There's an obsession in this country with celebrity. If you go back to the civil rights era, it was very clear, Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Curtis Mayfield, you know, Nina Simone, they were artists. And over here is Ella Baker, and Van Lou Hamer, and Bobby Kennedy, and Dolores Huertas, and people like that who were the leaders. The celebrities supported the art, the, the leaders. The celebrities were not the leaders. Does that make sense, y'all? But what we've inverted in these times, right. the celebrities have also become the leaders, even if they're not qualified to be spokespersons for anything, because most are not. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, you know, it's, 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 so we just stick microphones in front of people's faces because they're famous. Um, <laughs> Lasana's partner showed me, a, a, we were at breakfast yesterday. Y'all know Tiffany Haddish, the great comedian who's yes. probably one of the most honest video clips I've seen all year. Someone, what, what, it was some sort of award Tiffany just got at a women's gathering in Penn, an Emmy, thank you. And they asked her a very serious, heavy political question. You know what Tiffany said? I'm not qualified to answer that question. Now, if you <laughs> want to ask me how to structure a joke, I got you. That was honest. That's honest. I'm not qualified, you know? And, you know, unless you are a Susan Sarandon or a Rob Reiner, uh, you know, folks who are also not just actors or actresses, but also political activists who actually study, actually read, you know, George Clooney, I will listen to George Clooney because I'm like, George is traveling the world. He's involved in stuff, you know what I'm saying? But I just think that 
part of the fault is our obsession with celebrity, and part of it is the fault of what I've belonged to for 30 years, the media. The media is just obsessed with this stuff. Why do you think we have a celebrity president because of this culture that we're in? You know what I mean? That's part of it. What is, what, I mean, even if you think about it, Donald Trump really represents the whole country because he just talks in little phrases and soundbites, fake news this, fake news that. I mean, the panel we had today, there's no complete sentences. There's no deep thinking. There's no analysis, you know? Yeah, but yeah. how's he any different than LOL, OMG, you know what I'm saying? When you think about it, you know, how many of us put stuff out there? We don't, you know, what we were talking about today at the at Skyline, we're not, how many of us have retweeted stuff without even reading it, fact-checking, anything like that? Well, now you have a president who clearly doesn't fact-check anything. So we all are living in this kind of, you know, did y'all ever see the Truman Show with uh, Jim Carrey? That's the world that we live in. Or there's a reason why George Orwell's 1984 has become a national bestseller all over again, because that's the world that we live in. Now, the question, I have hope, because I see people like, oh, my God, you know what I'm saying? We're doomed. No, we're not doomed. I just feel that we've got to dig down deeper, no matter who we are, and make an effort, you know, to get organized. And it's not just voting, 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 as we said earlier today, but getting organized wherever we live, in San Francisco, on our blocks, and making an effort to educate ourselves and educate other people and say that we, as Gandhi said, have got to be the change that we want to see. Because the reality is, y'all, the right wing in this country has been organized from the moment that Bobby Kennedy and Dr. King got killed 50 years ago in 1968. Let's not forget that those folks who were Bobby Kennedy supporters, the white sisters and brothers, specifically, ended up becoming supporters of the Republican Party and the Reagan Revolution by 1980, and they've been riding with them ever since. Y'all feel where I'm going with this? And then they, again, as I said earlier, pit us against each other. You know what I mean? And we can't allow that to continue, you know? And so we got to make an effort, as Bobby said 50 years ago, you know, to find compassion and empathy, but also do something, do something, do something, you know, uh, and, and check yourself, you know? Everyone in this room has some form of privilege, whether you realize it or not. Just the fact you're here, you're privileged, you know? But it isn't, there's nothing wrong with having privilege, but like, what are you doing with that privilege to help other people? You know, are you challenging your racism? Are you challenging your sexism? Are you challenging your homophobia, your transphobia? Are you challenging your isms that are in you, you know? Are you doing anything like that to affect some sort of change that's gonna change this? Otherwise, they, that we like to talk about, will continue to win. And I can't accept that. That's unacceptable. And that's the work. That's the work to me. That is the work rooted in love, you know? But we, we have to, uh, uh, and I keep referring to Lasonic, we, we talk all the time. It's one of my best friends in the country. We gotta be prepared. We have to be prepared. We have to be prepared. How are you gonna call yourself an American? You have a working knowledge of American history. You know what I mean? How are you going to say you're a proud Brooklynite? You know, when I'm in New York, we're Brooklynite. I saw a ton of folks, they don't know anything about the history of Brooklyn. I'm like, well, you're claiming Brooklyn really hard, aren't you? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so who are we? You know? Kevin, who are the people that inspire you? You and the other great women I've met here at, at CIS. Um, seriously, you know, I really was inspired by our first conversation. I'm inspired by, by Reverend Earl, Lasana, you know, uh, Judy Chu, Dr. Chu, uh, Clovis Benjamin Swift, Rodney Ewing, Zoe Snow, people out here, you know, Cheyenne Van Cooten, you know, people out here in the space. Um, I'm inspired by people who do and who question uh, and make things happen. I am. I'm inspired by my mother. I mean, I, I think it's a, a miracle that this woman uh, raised me by herself with nothing. And here I'm sitting with 13 books. My mama has eighth grade education. She asks me to help her pronounce words. And my, my grandmother, my late grandmother, her mother could not read or write. And I'm sitting here with 13 books. I'm inspired by them. Yeah, I'm inspired by them. You know, and so I do have hope because I can see even from my mother's generation to me, I mean, you know, we got to take pride. There's a, a great um, Chinese American activist named uh, Ajin Pu, New York. She works with domestic workers in New York and around the country. She said, we got to take pride in the small victories, y'all. The small victories, the small victories, you know? It was a small victory, Brother Swift, when I met you, you know what I'm saying? And we got connected. It was a small victory when me and Lasana met, you know what I'm saying? It's a small victory for all of us who are connected in some way. When I met Dean Boston here, you know, she, she said to me, you know what, Kevin, I, needed, I, needed, I wanted to tell you in person, I heard you working on this biography of Tupac Shakur. I taught Tupac, I'm from Baltimore, I taught Tupac when I was, he was 13, 14 years old. 
I was like, this is crazy. You know what I'm saying? This is the divine, Reverend Earl. You know what I'm saying? This is this is the universe. And so we got we got to find hope in any way we can. And I really do believe that. Like I wouldn't get up if I didn't have hope. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And this is, I need to say this. This has been one of the worst years, the hardest years of my entire life. Serious financial struggles, serious emotional struggles. I battled depression most of my life. And this year particularly has hit me at different times. You know, sadness, just heavy sadness. And part of it is because of Trump. Let's be real about it. Yeah. He makes everybody sad. You're That's like, right. Mm-hmm. We all are like, we, we're like a Xanax nation right now. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how many of y'all have avoided, like, reading the news? Like, oh, I yes. have. I go right to the sports pages. I'm yeah. like, you know what? I've said to young people, don't go to the sports page. I'm like, yo, how the Yankees doing? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> because it's depressing. Yes, it is depressing. But this gives me hope. Just seeing y'all gives me hope. So thank you. So what's up next for you? The new book. Um, well, yeah, the biography of Tupac. Um, it's hard writing that. Um, I wrote my own memoir a few years ago, The Education of Kevin Powell. That took me three or four years. The Pac book, I feel like I've been writing it for 22 years since he was killed um, in some form or fashion. There's been a lot of pressure from people like, hey, when are you going to write that book? When are you going to write that book? Um, but again, I've just followed uh, Ms. Benjamin. You know what I'm talking about. Um, and that's Swift's mom, who I, I've had a, been blessed to meet as well. You know, I've listened to God, the universe, say, Kev, I'm going to put people on your journey that will help you, even if it's just a conversation. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, working on that book, because I feel like it's not just a book about Tupac, but it's really about, about, about um, through his lens, our country the last 50, 60 years, you know, um, because he was born in a deep times. You know, his mother was an incredible human being, Fanny Shakur, who died a couple years ago. No Fanny Shakur, there's no Tupac. It's real simple. You know what I mean? No Black Panther Party out of the Bay Area. There's no Tupac or Fanny. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, working on that, we're working on um, turning the, the education of Kevin Powell, as Alex said, into a, a, a something for the screen. Um, and just keep doing the work. Just keep doing the work of service to others. I mean, nothing brings me more joy than helping people. You know what I mean? Uh, I just love helping people. Um, and I'm married. I've been married a year and a half, which is incredible. Yes. I got Congratulations. lucky. Congratulations. <laughs> I got lucky. I, I think it's going to happen. I was planning on watching Netflix the rest of my life. Just <laughs> <laughs> being single. And so, you know, I say that to, is wonderful. Yeah, I'm saying to love people is out there, a beautiful thing. And love it? is love is love. And no matter what your love looks like, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I think that everyone has the right to have love, no matter what form that takes. If you got it, hold on to it, you know. Um, and it's not easy being married. <laughs> no, it's hard. <laughs> and I'm I'm a, I'm a Taurus. My wife is a Scorpio. So it's like, oof. Two very profound signs, you sure. know what I'm saying? Yeah. But she's my best friend. Um, she's an artist like I'm an artist, and, and and we challenge each other. And I would say she's made me a better human being and a better man just in the, in the three years that I've known her. You know what I'm saying? And I, I miss her terribly. Like, I'm, I, it's hard to be on the road now. And I've been on the road for 25 years. Now I'm like, man, I miss my wife. I'm going to go home. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And I just, you know, and I just think that um, love is important. I realized what I was missing. You know, and it's not for everyone. You don't have to get married, but I just think even Alice Walker talked about it, you know, um, in one of her books, like, you know, at least episodes of love in your life, episodes of love. You know, I just think human beings, would y'all agree? We need each other, don't we? You know what I mean? What's wrong with that? You know, and I just, and it doesn't have to be physical love or lovemaking or even a relationship, but just friendships. And I'm an only child, I'm a writer, and I've been an introvert many parts of my life and been antisocial, all of that. Hmm. But I realize now, like, I need communities of people. That's right. I need people. I really need people more than ever. And I don't want to ever feel like I'm just out here by myself, you know. So that's that's what's for me, just being in communities of people that are trying to, as we say in these times, move the needle forward and affect change. That's what it is. It's real simple. I don't, you know, a flat screen TV, I got that, so I'm happy now. <laughs> I don't, I don't even like material. I'm not even materialistic. Like I just said to my wife, can we just please get a flat screen TV for a new apartment so I can watch my sports? That's all I wanted. Other than that, I mean, I just, I think sure. we should live a simple life. I just, and I got that from Bell Hooks. That's not me. She just said, live a simple life. What I love is what Brother Rodney does. I love having art on the walls. I love music. I love books. Mm-hmm. Just simple things. But like, I'm not greedy. I don't need a lot of stuff. I just, I want to, I don't, I feel 
Like it hurts my heart to see the same level of homelessness in the Bay Area that I see in New York City. It hurts my heart to see all the tent communities. Yes. You know, I, I can't not see that. I cannot feel, y'all you know what I'm saying? You know, and so I just say strike a blow for freedom in different ways. That's what I try to do, you know. So that's what I say, love and education and just um, Dr. Little and CIIS, just thank y'all for the bottom of my heart for everything tonight. This has been beautiful and um, appreciate y'all. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.